Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. My name is Jessica Millar, PGY4 General Surgery Resident at the University of Michigan. And I'm Aaron Williams, a second-year cardiothoracic surgery fellow at Duke. And I'm Nick Tiemann, a cardiac surgeon at the University of Virginia. And we are so excited to be the first cardiac surgery subspecialty team for Behind the Knife. We know cardiac surgery can seem a bit daunting to some of our listeners out there, but most surgeons will come across cardiac surgery patients at some point during their training, whether in the OR, ICU, ED, etc., and that's why we are excited to bring you episodes focused on high-yield topics to help you navigate common cardiac surgery challenges, discuss relevant literature to help you in practice, and to help our listeners feel more comfortable around cardiac surgery patients. In this episode, we will discuss common cardiac surgery post-op problems. Whether you're on a cardiac surgery rotation or just covering an ICU with cardiac surgery patients for the night, these common problems are bound to occur. Jessica, why don't you get us started with our first common post-op problem, bleeding. Absolutely. So let's imagine you have a 65-year-old female who's admitted to the cardiac ICU status post a three-vessel cabbage. She was on cardiopulmonary bypass for a total of 120 minutes, and her ACT returned to baseline following protamine administration. Her mediastinum appeared dry prior to sternal closure, and she has four chest tubes, one in each pleural space, and two in the mediastinum. She arrives to the ICU intubated and sedated on a small amount of norepinephrine and dobutamine for hemodynamic support, and her initial postoperative labs demonstrate a hemoglobin and hematocrit similar to her baseline and platelets of 80,000. All of her other labs were normal. Approximately two hours after arriving to the ICU, though, you get paged by the bedside nurse, who noticed approximately 200 cc's out of one of the mediastinal chest tubes over the past hour. So... Pausing a second to talk about this scenario, cardiac surgery patients especially are at super high risk for postoperative bleeding. Many of our patients are on antiplatelet or anticoagulation therapy for concurrent comorbidities like coronary artery disease, cardiac sense, and AFib. And they experience extracorporeal circulation injury due to the use of cardiopulmonary bypass and the high doses of anticoagulation that we use during surgery while they're on bypass. Additionally, there's other risk factors that could increase their risk of bleeding, such as if this is an emergent operation, if it's a redo operation, how long they were on bypass, if we did other operations, etc. So Aaron, what are some of the common sites patients can bleed from post-cardiac surgery? Yeah, Jess, well, there's definitely a lot of these. Um, it could be any, anything from the sternum. It could be any sort of cannulation site could be a proximal or distal anastomosis, and really any branch off any of the grafts, whether that's your mammary or a vein, or even a radial for that matter. Um, you can also have issues with bleeding from the chest wall, such as your mammary bed, uh, where your pacing wires go through the chest wall, or even your chest tube sites. And then, of course, any suture lines you would have performed during surgery, and even the sternal wires. 
Yeah. So it sounds like there's a ton of places that these patients can bleed from. And so, Nick, why are these patients at such a high risk for bleeding? So cardiac surgery patients are at a higher risk for bleeding than other surgery patients. And that's entirely related to how we do these operations and what we do in the cardiac OR. So we induce hypothermia, right, to protect the heart, to protect the body while we're on bypass. And that hypothermia impairs the clotting cascade. All of these patients become hemodiluted because we have to prime the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit with crystalloid fluid, and that dilutes out their clotting factors. The bypass circuit itself, the heart-lung machine, can cause reduction in the number of platelets by almost 50%, causes platelet dysfunction, and just the trauma from the platelets circulating around through the bypass machine. You also get a systemic inflammatory response just from the extracorporeal circulation, and you get increased fibrinolysis from release of tissue plasminogen activator as a result of the endothelial activation. So let's jump back to our scenario for a second. In this scenario, the patient presented with a lot of blood out of one of their chest tubes. And for our post-cardiac surgery patients, this is going to be how most of our patients present with this high chest tube output. Your chest tubes can be a good way to measure blood loss, but keep in mind they are prone to clotting. So sometimes a patient can be bleeding and you may actually see nothing out of your chest tube. So have a high index of suspicion for bleeding, even if the chest tube output doesn't match the clinical picture. Aaron, out of curiosity, what do you use as your typical chest tube output cutoff for significant bleeding? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll say this will definitely vary by surgeon and institution, but I'd say you know, four to 500 in the first hour right off the bat would kind of mandate um, concern if you have two to 250 for several hours in a row or something like 100 to 150 for, you know, four to five hours kind of demonstrating ongoing bleeding. Those would all be concerning things. Every surgeon has a slightly different cutoff. So I think if the if your spidey sense is going off or the chest tube output is high, it's always best just to be in contact with the attending surgeon or your chief resident, whoever it might be, and let them know what's going on. Additionally, like we talked about, you may not always see blood coming out of your chest tube, but you should still have a high suspicion for bleeding if your patient has increasing pressure requirement, if they become hemodynamically unstable, if they have signs of cardiac tamponade, or if they have other signs of and organ malperfusion, such as decreased urine output. Now, Nick, you're an intensivist, so what labs or imaging are you going to be ordering to help better assess a cardiac surgery patient who's bleeding? So a lot of these are the things that you would normally expect, right? You're going to check a CBC and look at what the hemoglobin and hematocrit are doing. You're going to check a full set of coagulation labs, so the INR, PTT, the fibrinogen. Um, But there's some other tests that we get specifically in cardiac surgery patients. So most centers have some sort of enhanced coagulopathic testing. So either a thromboelastography, rotational thromboelastometry, or other variants of of that. We often will check an activated clotting time or an ACT. Uh, And then in terms of imaging, there's a couple things that are pretty helpful. One is just a plain old chest X-ray. So let's say the chest tubes stop working and you're worried that they're they're clotted off, you can get a chest X-ray. And if the pleural spaces are open during the operation, if you see uh, fluid accumulating in the pleural space, that's concerning for ongoing bleeding. You can also do a bedside TTE to look for evidence of a pericardial effusion or for tamponade, although it's not necessarily the most sensitive test. One thing to remember is that many of these tests don't assess the actual platelet function, and the platelet number in this scenario often isn't that helpful. Many of these patients receive antiplatelet therapies uh, before their operation, and so even the platelet count may be normal, the platelet function itself is, is not normal, and so these tests aren't really reliable for that. Something else I think that you can do and that we do oftentimes is you can take one of the ACT machines from the operating room and you can also run an ACT right there at the bedside. It's usually very quick 
And if there's still any sort of residual heparin left from the surgery itself, that might actually be a better measure of coagulopathy or residual heparin as sometimes your PTT can become unreliable if your heparin level is still super high. So let's move on to trying to help this patient who we think is bleeding. Our main goal is to obviously stop the bleeding, but we also want to make sure that we're maintaining blood pressure and perfusion. And the reason for that is the consequence of ongoing bleeding are things like end organ damage, such as renal failure or adverse cardiovascular events, such as stroke or MI, and of course, death. And we can always start with crystalloid and colloid resuscitation, and we should certainly try to fix all other variables that may be contributing to coagulopathy, such as making sure the patient's rewarmed, make sure that they aren't acidotic, replace any calcium. But Aaron, oftentimes these patients just need blood. So what blood products do you consider giving these patients? Yeah, it's a great question, Jess. So we all know that um, transfusion, blood product transfusions are associated with adverse outcomes in cardiac surgery, right? They're associated with increased mortality, morbidity, and, and decreased long-term survival. But, you know, obviously when you're in this type of situation, when you got to give it, you got to give it. So for packed red cells in, in general, you try to stay ahead of the game and you, you give it when the hemoglobin is less than eight. Obviously, if you've got ongoing bleeding and you're drifting down at a certain rate, you're going to go ahead and give that even if you may be above eight. In terms of platelets, definitely another thing that we tend to give a lot in cardiac surgery if needed. I'd say generally we try to keep the platelet count above 100, and so that's something that we will target there. For cryo, um, another thing that we often give, we try to target a fibrinogen greater than 200, um, also FFP. Um, and so many times, you know, if someone's massively bleeding and they're kind of on the massive transfusion protocol train, uh, we often will try to balance the products that we're using, almost similar to, to trauma in a way. Um, and then there's a couple other um, options as well if you're severely bleeding. Um, PCC um, is something that uh, some centers use, not all. It works um, very, very fast and uh, is something you may want to use if you want to minimize volume. And then lastly, things like factor seven can also be a, a good option if your back's against the wall. Aaron, you brought up some great alternatives to blood products. Nick, are there any other pro-hemostatic agents that you might consider using in the bleeding post-op cardiac surgery patient? Uh, yeah. So so one thing is if you think that there's still some heparin uh, creating a coagulopathy, you can give more proteamine. So if you check an ACT or a PTT and that's prolonged and you think that there's still heparin circulating in the body, then then additional proteamine uh, will help reverse that. Uh, remember that the half-life of heparin is, is about an hour and the half-life of proteamine is shorter. So sometimes you get a heparin rebound where initially you seem like you're dry and everything looks great and then you start uh, bleeding. And then that can be from the, the residual heparin still having an effect. It's important to remember, though, that, that just having an abnormal PTT or abnormal ACT is not reason enough to give more protamine um, because at a higher doses, protamine can also actually have an anticoagulative effect. So, so once the heparin's reversed, giving more protamine isn't, isn't going to help. Uh, we usually start with doses of around 25 milligrams and then see if there's any change in the bleeding. The other thing that we'll sometimes give is DDAVP, um, which can release uh, vulnerable branch factor and factor eight. Usually, uh, you can give two doses uh, after eight hours and then subsequent dose every 24 hours uh, due to the development of tachyphylaxis. You know, we mainly give, uh, in our practice, we mainly give this in patients that have some degree of renal dysfunction and you think there's a, a component of platelet dysfunction related to that. Um, it, it can result in a small decrease in perioperative blood loss, but um, this has not been shown to significantly decrease transfusion requirements and can actually uh, be associated with increase in perioperative MI. Finally, sometimes uh, we'll give antifibrinolytic agents like aminocoproic acid or tranexamic acid. Um, and in some places do this more than others. Uh, there's not great data, but some data suggesting that it might decrease bleeding in cardiac sugary patients. 
let's say, let's jump back to this patient. So about 200 cc's out of the chest tube over the past hour. We're going to try all of these other things to maybe see if we can slow down the, the bleeding. And there are some non-operative strategies that we can utilize. So for this patient, if they remain hemodynamically stable without any increasing pressure requirement, and we're able to maintain their hemoglobin and hematocrit without the need for transfusion, we can kind of just keep monitoring for the time being and just make sure that that amount doesn't increase over the next several hours. We can also make sure on a chest x-ray that we're not seeing any significant collection of pleural fluid, like Nick mentioned earlier, to kind of also show that there might be more bleeding going on inside the chest. But sometimes if these patients continue to bleed, if the chest tube output continues to increase, or they start to become hemodynamically unstable, meaning that you might have increasing pressure requirements, we can't maintain their hemoglobin hematocrit, they have an ongoing need for blunt transfusion, or we see those growing pleural fusions on the chest x-ray, chances are we probably just need to go back to the OR to intervene. These can oftentimes be very unsatisfying surgeries. Uh, only about half the time do we actually find a surgically correctable source. And bleeding and surgical re-exploration are both independent predictors of adverse outcomes. So most people will try to avoid a reoperation if necessary, but reoperation rates for bleeding can vary anywhere between 13 to 14 percent between centers. Lastly, sometimes your patient is just too unstable to get to the operating room. And in those cases, you may need to do a bedside intervention, such as a bedside sternotomy. These are cases of extreme hemodynamic instability, and especially if you're concerned about tamponade or cardiac arrest. All right, great. I think that about covers the management of postoperative bleeding. Let's move on to another clinical scenario that everyone taking care of cardiac surgery patients needs to be aware of, low cardiac output syndrome or postcardiotomy cardiogenic shock. So here's the scenario. This patient is a 58-year-old male who presents to the emergency department with a several-day history of chest pain and worsening shortness of breath. He's found to have ST elevations in the inferior leads, and he is taken urgently to the cath lab where an occluded posterior descending artery is found. His respiratory status worsens, he is emergently intubated, and a TEA probe is placed which shows severe mitral regurgitation from a ruptured papillary muscle and moderate to severe right ventricular dysfunction. Cardiac surgery is consulted and he is taken emergently to the operating room where he undergoes a mitral valve replacement. He is now admitted to the cardiac ICU on 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute of epinephrine and 0.2 micrograms per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine. His cardiac index is 1.6 liters per minute per meter squared by thermodilution. These are obviously pretty complicated patients, and there are a lot of things to consider. Jess, can you start us off by talking about how we make the diagnosis of a low cardiac output state? Sure. So in these patients, they'll likely be hypotensive and demonstrate signs of tissue malperfusion, such as low urine output or an elevated lactic acid. On exam, they might have evidence of vasoconstriction, so their extremities might be cool and mottled. But ultimately, the diagnosis of low cardiac output is going to be made with their pulmonary artery catheter. Now, many centers are moving away from the routine use of pulmonary artery catheters because they haven't really been shown to impact outcomes. And there's lots of other non-invasive techniques available. But in these complex patients, these PA catheters or SWAN catheters, as you might hear them called sometimes, still have a role. The PA catheter lets you track the cardiac index, and in some cases, you can even do this continuously to help you make the diagnosis of low cardiac output syndrome. And we'll define this as a cardiac index of less than 2.2. Your PA catheter will also give you information about other right-side hemodynamic measurements and can identify right ventricular failure. It can also allow you to check mixed venous oxygen saturation, which is just another measure of tissue perfusion. 
That's great. It's also important to recognize the predictors of postoperative low cardiac output syndrome, including advanced age, low ejection fraction, prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass time, emergent operations, incomplete coronary vascularization, anemia, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. All right, Aaron, walk us through how you approach patients with a low cardiac output. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the first step is to really optimize everything that you can. So if the patient's acidotic, you got to correct the acidosis. If they've got any electrolyte abnormalities, you've got to correct those as well. And then you've also got to optimize your ventilator settings so the patient isn't hypoxic or hypercarbic. Once I'm satisfied that I've optimized these things, I then take a systematic approach to determining the cause of the low cardiac output. You then need to determine whether it's an issue with the preload or the intravascular volume, an issue with the pump itself, or an issue with some sort of obstruction of flow, like cardiac tamponade. That's right. And there are, really are a couple dozen different ways that we can determine intravascular volume status. Uh, but two of the most frequent tools that we use at UVA are a passive leg raise and point of care ultrasound. So a passive leg raise involves laying the patient flat, raising their legs straight up in the air, and assessing for volume responsiveness. Essentially, you're giving a reversible fluid bolus to the heart. There's different ways of doing this, different systems that people use, um, but we look at the mean arterial blood pressure on the arterial line, and we say that a 12% increase or greater signifies a positive response. If they have a 12% increase or greater in their mean arterial pressure, then they're volume responsive, and then we give them a fluid bolus. Now, point-of-care ultrasound also very helpful in, in determining volume status. You can look at the right ventricle, you can look at the collapsibility of the IVC, uh, but unfortunately, in the fresh post-operative cardiac trigger patient like this patient, oftentimes the transthoracic windows are not the greatest and it's not going to be super helpful. Now, you mentioned cardiac tamponade and, and its management. I think we pretty co well covered that in the last scenario. But let's say you think this is a problem with the pump itself. Now what, Aaron? Yeah, so I think bedside echocardiography would be pretty helpful here. Um, but as you said, oftentimes the windows aren't great in fresh post-op patients. So when you're in doubt, you can always drop a TEE probe down and really get a good look at what's going on. So, so what are you looking for? What are the main things you're looking for with that echo? Yeah, so the main thing would be to assess your biventricular function. You definitely should take a look at the valves as well, especially in a patient that had a valvular operation. And then you can also see if there's a pericardial effusion or any evidence of tamponade, although the echo isn't always the most sensitive test for this, especially a transthoracic echo. But in this case, the patient started out with some right ventricular dysfunction, and it is likely that this is the cause of the low cardiac output. This is, again, where a PA catheter would be helpful to us. And the most sensitive indicator of RVV failure is the pulmonary artery pulsatility index, or PAPI. This is the PA pulse pressure, or the PA systolic, minus the PA diastolic, divided by the central venous pressure, or the CVP. Um, when this number is less than one, it's often used to indicate right ventricular failure. Yeah, and that's a really important point. So oftentimes when I'm working in the ICU, 
people come out to me concerned because the PA pressures are high and they think that means the patient's in an RV failure. In reality, if the RV is able to generate high systolic pressures, it's probably functioning okay. The relationship between the RV ejection, like you said, the PA pulse pressure, and the CVP is much more important when assessing RV function. All right, Jess, how should we treat this patient who has a low cardiac output? So assuming we've correctly assessed and optimized the volume status, the mainstay of treatment for low cardiac output is going to be inotropic support. The most commonly used inotropes are going to be epinephrine, milrinone, dobutamine, and less frequently you might see dopamine used. There's not much in the way of data to support one over another, so this can oftentimes just be institutional dependent or just depends on individual provider practice patterns. You can also give IV calcium supplementation with calcium gluconate, and those can also be effective in treating hypotension and low cardiac output. The other therapy that we use for patients with low cardiac output due to right ventricular failure is inhaled pulmonary vasodilators. These can include inhaled prostacyclins such as Vloritri or Flolan, or inhaled nitric oxide. Each of these medications helps to reduce the pulmonary vascular resistance, and that then produces less strain on the right ventricle. Importantly, since they're inhaled, they oftentimes have minimal systemic effects, and so these medications are generally well-tolerated. Great. So that's a really good overview of the medical management of postcardiotomy, cardiogenic shock, and low cardiac output state. But sometimes medical therapy isn't enough. So Aaron, what other options do we have? So if there's evidence of ongoing malperfusion despite anotropic therapy, the next step would be mechanical circulatory support, or MCS. Now, the least aggressive form of the support is an intraaortic balloon pump, or IABP. Now, this works by inflating during diastole and augmenting the cardiac output to increase organ perfusion, and deflates during systole to lower the afterload and to promote LV emptying. Now, the advantage of a balloon pump is that it's easy to place at the bedside in the ICU, but it's limited by the amount of support that it can provide. The best data we have from this comes from the IAPV shock 2 trial, which randomized patients to cardiogenic shock from acute MI to balloon pump or medical therapy and found no difference in mortality or other outcomes. Now, more aggressive forms of MCS include single ventricle support like an impella or tandem heart percutaneous LVAD for left ventricular support or a Protec Duo or an impella RP percutaneous RVAD for right ventricular support. But ultimately, these patients may require ECMO if they fail less invasive measures. All right, so that's a wrap on the second scenario. Let's move on to scenario three. All right, so you have a 60-year-old uh, male who recently undergoes an outpatient heart catheterization for a positive stress test. He's been having several weeks of chest pain and worsening shortness of breath. As full medical history includes high cholesterol, COPD, CKD, and diabetes. Now, during his cath, he's found to have three-vessel disease involving the RCA, the LAD, and one of the OM branches of the CERT. His echo shows normal function and no valve abnormalities. Now you perform a beautiful three-vessel cabbage, including a lemon LAD, a vein graft to his OM, and then a vein graft to the distal RCA. Now he does pretty well and moves to the step-down unit on day one, but on post-operative day two, he's noted to have an acutely elevated heart rate to the 140s. He's hemodynamically stable, and the nurse tells you that the rhythm looks abnormal in the monitor and is having difficulty noticing any evidence of any true P waves. Obviously, this is a very classic scenario of cardiac surgery, postoperative AFib or atrial fibrillation. And this is a postoperative scenario that all students and residents should really be aware of and ready to manage. Now, Jess, can you tell us a little bit more about AFib in general and why it's important? Yeah. 
Postoperative AFib is extremely common in the post-op cardiac surgery patient population. In fact, it can occur in about 35% of cardiothoracic surgery cases. This is in comparison to an incidence of only about 1% to 10% following non-cardiac surgery cases. So being familiar with postoperative AFib is important because it can be a predictor of postoperative outcomes. In fact, it's been shown to be associated with a two- to four-fold increase in complications such as stroke, reoperation, infection, renal and respiratory failure, cardiac arrest, as well as the need for a pacemaker. It's also been shown to be associated with an increased 30-day and six-month mortality. Exactly. AFib plays a huge role here in patient outcomes and management. And despite lots of research in this area, its incidence really hasn't changed over the past several decades. And as such, there's still a lot of room for improvement in research in the area of AFib treatment. Okay, so Nick, let's talk a little bit about the etiology and yeah, so there's three major categories of mechanisms that, that we know that contributes to the development of AFib in cardiac surgery patients, breaking down into systemic factors, local factors, and then also impact of the patient's electrolyte on their rhythm. So systemic factors include the trauma of heart surgery itself, the patient being on cardiopulmonary bypass, and then the reperfusion injury that happens to the heart, which can lead to a pro-inflammatory and oxidative state. Now, there's also local components that play a role. And these include factors such as disruption of the pericardium, development of pericardial fluid postoperatively, and direct trauma to the myocardium itself. And then finally, there are several important electrolytes that play a role in the development of post-op AFib, and these include magnesium, potassium, and calcium. Totally. And it's also worth pointing out that the incidence of developing postoperative AFib differs based on cardiac surgery type. For cabbage, it's about 20%. For valve operations, it's way higher at 40 to 50%. Aortic surgery is around 30%, and heart transplant is the lowest at about 4%. Okay, Jess, so let's talk a little bit more about how you would manage this patient. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so first I would go and I'd evaluate the patient. And since AFib can be short-lasting or can last for a long while, I would try to get a sense of how long this has been going on for. And also get a sense of what the rate is, as there can even be slow AFib or AFib with a rapid ventricular response. And most importantly, I would sort out from the beginning if the patient was hemodynamically stable or unstable and if they were symptomatic or not, as that would drastically change my management. If the patient was stable, I would start by looking at the monitor and trying to evaluate the rhythm myself. But I would also order a formal 12-lead EKG, a chest x-ray, and some labs just to try to look at those electrolytes that Nick mentioned earlier. And if the patient was stable, I could try treatment with several different drugs, including amiodarone, beta blockers, or even some calcium channel blockers. Typically, one agent could be tried, and then you can add another if needed. And if the patient was unstable, I'd skip all of these, and I would move to cardioversion. So, Nick, tell us a little bit more about the medical management of the drug strategies to treat postoperative atrial fibrillation. So there are two general approaches that we take in terms of medical management, uh, and that's rate control and rhythm control. So as the name suggests, rate control is a strategy that focuses on slowing down the heart rate. So they'll still be in AFib. They'll just have a, a slower heart rate, and hopefully that will help them be hemodynamically stable. We usually use beta blockers uh, like metoprolol or calcium channel blockers like diltiazem to achieve this. On the other hand, rhythm control involves trying to convert the arrhythmia to sinus rhythm by using either medications or by electrical cardioversion. Now, interestingly, when compared to head-to-head, Neither strategy has shown significant clinical benefit over the other in terms of mortality, bleeding, stroke, length of stay, or premium from AFib out to 60 days. But I will say that in my practice, if I have a patient who came in without a history of AFib, 
I usually like to see them go home, not an AFib. So I will at least give them a, a trial of a rhythm control and or cardioversion before I uh, stick to a rate control strategy. All right, so let's highlight these medications a bit further for our listeners. And, and just so you guys know, a good reference for all this stuff would be the AHA-ACC guidelines from 2014, um, but these were actually updated in 2019. So Nick, okay, let's talk a little bit more about amiodarone. Hit us. Yeah, so amiodarone is considered to be a class three antiarrhythmic medication. And uh, remember, as we said earlier, it's in the category of a rhythm control drug. So the purpose, the goal of that medication is to convert patients into sinus rhythm. Usually we'll start with a uh, IV bolus of 150 milligrams, and then we'll follow that by starting a continuous infusion uh, at a rate of one milligram per minute for six hours, and then 0.5 milligrams per minute for the next 18 hours. After that, we typically convert to an oral formulation, but any time that the heart rate picks up or there's any concern, you can always give another bolus of 150 milligrams uh, through the IV. Important to be aware that it can cause bradycardia and QT interval prolongation when you're using it. And Jess, what about beta blockers and calcium channel blockers? Both beta blockers and calcium channel blockers can help provide rate control for postoperative AFib. Typically, beta blockers can be given in the form of IV, such as metoprolol 5 milligrams IV pushes. And most of our patients are actually going to have an indication to go home on a beta blocker anyway in an oral form. It's important to note that you have to be careful, though, with the negative inotropic effects of beta blockers, especially in patients who are already hypotensive, have heart failure, or LV dysfunction. In addition to beta blockers, calcium channel blockers also have that class 1 recommendation for postoperative AFib when beta blockers are ineffective or if they're contraindicated. But we don't usually use these as commonly. There's an option to keep in your back pocket. For other medications, you can also consider digoxin or other antiarrhythmics, but best to consult one of your cardiology colleagues for management if you're thinking about using one of these medications. And I also want to highlight the AATS recommendations about this as well. So when a patient is discharged in normal sinus rhythm and is on an antiarrhythmic drug, you should in general continue this drug for at least four weeks after the last episode or until the first postoperative visit. And then in addition, if the patient is happens to be discharged in atrial fibrillation, you should usually continue this for four weeks after your first visit without postoperative AFib. Okay, Nick, so let's talk a little bit more about cardioversion. What are the scenarios in which you'd cardiovert a patient with postoperative AFib? Yeah, so this is a great thing to talk about. First, direct current cardioversion may be needed in several scenarios. These typically include when the patients become hemodynamically unstable, when you're having trouble controlling their ventricular response, meaning you're having trouble getting rate control with medication and therapy, and then also when they have postoperative AFib that lasts approaching 48 hours. So Again, there's different practices. Everybody is a little bit different about this. But at our institution, if somebody has been in AFib for more than 48 hours, then they need a TE to clear their appendage. They need to be anticoagulated. And so once we're reaching that point is usually when we start thinking about cardioverting them. Because again, if they didn't have a history of AFib before, we want to try to keep them out of AFib and, and have them go home in sinus rhythm. So sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes they're going to be in paroxysmal AFib when they go home. But we keep an eye on that. And kind of when we're reaching that 48-hour clock is when we start thinking about filing a, a cardioversion. All right, so another thing we should talk about is anticoagulation for patients with postoperative AFib. Now, the European and American guidelines certainly have recommendations for this, but I'll say that in recent years, this has shifted a little bit, and there are ongoing trials to help us better answer these questions. So the European guidelines state that long-term anticoagulation to prevent stroke is definitely reasonable after postoperative AFib following cardiac surgery. And the U.S. guidelines are pretty similar here, and they also recommend anticoagulation in patients who have developed postoperative AFib now, the argument for anticoagulation and postoperative AFib is based on observational data 
that identify an increased stroke risk with postoperative AFib. However, there's been several more recent analyses, including an STS analysis, that has found an association between discharge anticoagulation and mortality with no mortality benefit with those who have had CHASVAS scores of 2 to 4 or even 5 or greater. And so as such, the data are a little bit unclear right now as to whether there's benefit or harm from anticoagulation after postoperative AFib, say from a cabbage. And so honestly, we're really rating, waiting on these randomized control trial data to help give us a little bit more insight. Now, it is also important to remember that the some of the intraoperative factors will come into play also. You know, for example, if the patient had their left atrial appendage ligated, or if they had an ablation, or they have a history of AFib, that all may dictate what you do in terms of their postoperative anticoagulation. So if you find yourself taking care of some of these patients, uh, you know, when in doubt, just ask the intensivist, ask the surgeons at your institution, because that's all going to vary quite a bit across institutions. Yeah, that's a great point, Nick. And then lastly, let's talk a little bit about hospital prophylaxis against postoperative AFib. Jess, can you tell us a little bit about some maybe some perioperative treatments and Nick, some about some intraoperative techniques? Yeah, so there's definitely some evidence about some of these perioperative strategies to help prevent postoperative AFib. Uh, some of these we use in clinical practice, others are still kind of in the early phase, and some really don't have any data at all. Um, but beta blockers and amiodarone have some evidence as being good prophylaxis against postoperative AFib. Sotolol even has some, although that's a little bit less strong. There is some weak or limited evidence for calcium channel blocker other drugs like procanamide, dolphetilide, et cetera. And you may even see colchicine, statins, glucocorticoids, fatty acids. These, though, all have kind of pretty limited or weak data. Now, now, in terms of intraoperative strategies, you know, there's not a lot that you can do intraoperatively to prevent AFib postoperatively. You know, one thing that some people strongly advocate for is opening up the uh, posterior pericardium or doing a, a left posterior pericardiotomy. So basically, you drain the pericardial space into the left pleural space. Doing so, this allows better drainage of the pericardial space, prevents the kind of inflammation and, and low-grade pericarditis that can occur and that we think contributes to atrial fibrillation. Now, there is some good randomized controlled trial data from the Columbia group, um, but kind of larger uh, multi-center trials are, are currently being discussed for this. Awesome. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today, but we really hope that you guys have enjoyed these three scenarios and these three common post-operative complications that cardiac surgery patients frequently have. Feel free to reach out to us on social media if you have any suggestions or comments for future episodes. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.